to open up this passage in Colossians we're going to open up together. It's a powerful one. At the men's uh, breakfast about a month or so ago now, Jose mentioned uh, this illustration of a dollar bill and how uh, the difference between counterfeits and real bills. And uh, I was a bank teller for about a year and a half. I was the one who processed cash. You came and dropped off your money. I cashed your checks. I gave you your money and so forth. And uh, it wasn't like it was a career that I was really hotly pursuing, but it's something God put before me. It was a a fun time. I learned a lot. Uh, I worked for LaSalle Bank uh, for about eight months and before it was swallowed up by the Bank of America. Uh, And when I got hired there, I had no cash handling experience. I never really worked with money. I didn't have much money to ever work with, uh, personally speaking. So I had a lot of training to do. And they sent me to a facility that they had for training future tellers. And while I was there, I was there with about six or seven other future tellers, and they were teaching us about how to handle cash. And you've heard stories about how to recognize a counterfeit, and and a lot of those are true. Uh, There's about three different things they taught us. The first one, they they did help us uh, hold real money, help us see and feel what it was like. And we got to see the authentic and real thing. But we did actually look at counterfeits as well, and they showed some really crummy counterfeits, and they had some really pretty close counterfeits that were pretty amazing. And then the third thing they did, they taught us how to carry our money in our drawers. And they were just anal about how we are supposed to have our money lined up. You've got to have all of the heads facing up and in the right and same exact way. Because the more you see it, you see the money as you, you uh, count it, you recognize the formation there. And if you can spot something that's counterfeit quicker. I'll, I'll admit, I got duped once. I got duped. And it was very frustrating. I mentioned that for a year and a half I worked as a teller. When I was at LaSalle Bank, our drawers carried uh, $20,000 in them. And that was just a daily thing. And I, I, I handled cash. Probably over $100,000 every month would go through my fingers. And when I was at Lincoln Park Savings Bank, it was about $10,000 we had in our drawer. So I was, I was handling money all the time. People would come and cash a $3,000 check. You know, I get used to it. Just, it used to be real nerve-wracking. Then it, I just got used to it. But one day, at the end of the day, I was just kind of balancing my drawer, making sure everything was in order. And there, lo and behold, I was counting my $100 bills. And I saw that thing, and I was like, oh, someone duped me. I had no clue who it was. I, I, I did not remember. I was thinking through. I was like, who gave me this false bill? I just could not remember it. So I told my supervisor, and we had to make out it. I was just frustrated. I was like, you know, I've seen I don't know how many of these things. And I got fooled. Very frustrated very frustrating. So I brought some cash with me today. And I want to see how good your eyes are. All right? There's a fake bill in here. Not necessarily a counterfeit. But I'm going to count these bills, and I want you to tell me when you see it. All right? See it? I'll do it again for these guys. That's not how it works, man. Sure, you saw it. It's a uh, what, what kind of dollar bill? What kind of bill was it? How much? Ten dollars. It's actually a seven dollar bill. That's DL Moody on it to track. <laughs> All right. I need a volunteer here um, for a test. 
All right. Carlos Fabio. See, the thing is, <laughs> the counterfeits aren't always easy to spot. You can do it visually, but sometimes they feel, they have different texture. And you can tell when they've been printed on something different. Sometimes they're a little different size. Sometimes they're awfully close. And, you know, the reality is, is I was thinking about that. When I got duped, I, like I said, I, I was an experienced teller. And I knew what a real bill was. And I knew what a fake one is. But as I was thinking about how did that happen, I thought about, you know, I, I lost focus. When it becomes so routine, you get so used to it, you don't even think to look sometimes. You just, you just count the cash. And losing focus led me to be duped. And when I think about this in terms of the spiritual realm, the same is true with reference to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we... We know of who Jesus is, but there are many counterfeit Jesuses out there, many counterfeit teachings about who Jesus is. And if we're not careful, if we don't stay focused or diligent, we can be duped. We might have someone ring the doorbell at our house on a Saturday morning and say that Jesus is an awesome person. He died for you. He loves you and that they themselves love him. And you think this is good news. You got a Bible in your hand? I've got a Bible. But when you peer a little closely, 
you recognize, whoa, you guys don't believe Jesus is God? This is a counterfeit. That's not what the Bible teaches. Or some of you might be a little surprised to find out that even in Islam, they believe in Jesus. They believe he was a great prophet, a great teacher. They love Jesus. But they don't believe he's God. That's a counterfeit Jesus. In the New Age world that we live in, many people want to embrace the Jesus that loves, Jesus of embrace, Jesus of kindness. But how about the Jesus that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Then people get a little antsy. Because their Jesus is counterfeit. It's not real. And even in the times of Christ, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And he got all sorts of responses. Some say Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah, the prophet. Some say you're one of the prophets. Some even say you're John the Baptist. And by that point, John the Baptist was dead. And Jesus asked Peter, who who do you say that I am? Because that's not who I am. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. That's the right answer. That's not a counterfeit. Even in the book of Colossians, there's these misunderstandings of who Jesus was. And people limited Jesus. They lowered his, his grandeur. And they submitted him to these different ideas. To the place where they were even elevating angels to greater prominence than, who, than Jesus. And Paul wrote this letter of Colossians saying, look, that's wrong. And throughout the letter, he is defending who Jesus is and what true faith in him looks like. And we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15, uh, 13 through 20. Turn your Bibles there. In order for us to be able to discern and see a counterfeit, we've got to take a deep look at the real thing. A deep look at the real thing. And we take a look at Jesus by opening his word. And studying it with diligence. Another, another good way, of course, the Bible is our final authority. But throughout this weekend, we're going to be pointing you guys to a reference, this book right here. Uh, this is called Basic Theology by Charles Ryrie. It's a book of systematic theology where he takes different, the, the different scriptures and puts them together and tries to get a, a full understanding of different topics. And he has one particular section, a long one, on Jesus Christ. On his, his divinity, that's, that he is God, his humanity, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And this is a wonderful resource that we're going to be pointing you guys to and encouraging you guys to, to buy it. So, I'll give you mine. Give me a prayer. Father, this morning, yes, give me a computer to study the, to study the truth in conjunction with the scriptures. You do that, bro. Good. So we're going to look at the real Jesus here, not a counterfeit. We're going to dig into Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 13. This is referring to God the Father, this word he. God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, I'm going to stop there. It's talking about what God the Father has done. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the darkness that we were bound in before Jesus. This is a darkness where we are slaves to our sin. 
we, we, we can't say no to sin and yes to, to things that honor God because we're slaves. And what, what Jesus has done by his death, see, has freed us from that. And, and the Father has placed us out of there and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, he says, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption means that we are no longer enslaved. Forgiveness means we are no longer condemned. And that's what we are in Jesus Christ. We are redeemed and forgiven. And we think about that. How could Jesus redeem and forgive humanity? How could he do that? How could Jesus give someone that life, that hope? And I think one of the deeper questions is, who is Jesus? Or as I heard someone once put it recently, what's so great about Jesus? What's so great about Jesus? And what I want to do as we look at the following verses, verses 15 through 20, I'm going to do what Paul does. We're going to brag about Jesus. We're going to boast about who he is. 1 Corinthians 1.31 says, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So as we dive into these next six verses, we're going to see five awesome realities about who Jesus is. We're going to look at him. We're going to brag about him. We're going to lift him high and have him exalted. And my prayer has been, as I've been preparing this message, is that God would stir your hearts to worship him. That you would look to see, that's the Jesus who redeemed me, who forgave me. That's him? Boy, I've got no response but to fall before him. So we're going to look at these five awesome realities. And my prayer is as we progress from one to the next, you would see how beautiful Christ is, how awesome he is. And we'll see his preeminence. You see, that's the title of, your, of, of the, the retreat. It's the pursuit of God, the preeminence of Christ. And this is your workbook, by the way. And there's a sermon note page on page three for this message. So if you have that, you can take notes there. The preeminence of Christ. Now, that's a word we don't use very often. But the word preeminent means he is of supreme rank. He is first, above all. And these five things we're going to look at, it's going to show how really, how high and how elevated, how exalted Christ is. And my prayer, again, is that Jesus would be beautiful in our sight and we bow our hearts before him. So look at verse 15, right off the bat. Paul's bragging. He says, Jesus is referring to Jesus. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. So that's the first thing. Jesus is the he is the invisible God made visible. Jesus is the invisible God made visible. We see that there in verse 15. Now, what does that mean? Now, the word image in Greek is, is icon. And we got that, that same language in our English. Uh, we have the word icon. And an icon is something that resembles something else. So it's like you, you could brand a, a particular product with an icon or a logo. And that logo represents the product. And, of course, this is, it's more than just that. See, on the one hand, Jesus reflects the very nature of God, like a coin does. And that's what this word is often used in Greek. You know, here we have the picture of George Washington on this quarter right here in my hand. And this looks just like George Washington. So Jesus has the same uh, image of God the Father. But another aspect of this is that he is... This image made manifest. See, Jesus existed before he was born of Mary. His name wasn't Jesus until that point. 
But he existed before. And we're going to look a little bit at that next, uh, tomorrow morning, how Jesus existed even in the Old Testament. And he wasn't referred to as Jesus, but he was God the Son. And God the Son is invisible God. But when he was born, he became visible. When he was born through Mary, he became visible. And here Paul saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the invisible God made visible to us. Jesus is God. Je- Jesus is God, man. And because of that, he's worthy of worship. You look it down at verse 19. Paul says it again. For in him, referring to Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is fully God. You go to chapter 2, verse 9. It says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is the visible manifestation of the of Almighty God of the universe. And here Paul's just elevating him above everything. There's nothing greater than Jesus. Now it's interesting because. Hebrews 1.3 says almost an identical thing. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the power of His word. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is Jesus, the radiance of God. Now someone once asked me, actually, at Jehovah's Witness Day, one morning when I was talking to them, sharing with them the deity of Jesus Christ in the scriptures, and the the lady asked me, like, how could someone look at Jesus and live, then, if he were God? Because the Bible says you cannot look at God and live. You ever heard that one before? Well, I referred to Exodus 33. And this is a marvelous passage. Because here it talks about Moses' relationship with God, Jehovah, or Yahweh, is the proper way to say it. And it says in Exodus 33, verse 11, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. As a man speaks to his friend. Well, that's interesting. But later on in that chapter, in verse 20, says, God's talking to Moses, says, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So I, I, I show this person, what, what, what's that supposed to mean then? Moses talked to God face to face, and then a few verses later, God says, You can't see my face and live. See, God is almighty, and his glory cannot be seen by anyone. But God does let us see him in different ways. And he let Moses see him. Think of Isaiah 6. When Isaiah saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted. And Isaiah's response, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. But Isaiah lived. And there's this this. Reality that God in his glory cannot, we cannot see him and live. We would just die because he is holy. We are not. But God is a personal God. He has led us into fellowship with him. And he came in the form of man to let us be a part of that. And that's what Jesus did. He is the invisible God made visible. And he is glorious. So what's so great about Jesus? Well, first of all, he's God. In human flesh. Second of all, we see that Jesus is the ruler of all things because he's the creator of all things. Look at the second part of verse 15. It says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
and thing, uh, all things were created through him and for him. Now, many t- points of this passage, it just said he's a firstborn. And you've got to notice, okay, is Paul confused? He just said he's God. Now he's saying he's firstborn. What is he trying to say? Well, this word firstborn doesn't necessarily mean like the oldest son, for instance. You know, every time in the New Testament but once, when this word is used, it's not used in a literal way. In fact, it's used in verse 19. Sorry, verse 18. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? Jesus was born of the dead? Of course not. But he came from, he came alive, and he is the, he sets the, the standard of resurrection. And here, in, in verse 15, when he says he is the firstborn of creation, it's really pointing to his, his rulership, that he is above it all. Just like a firstborn son is above the family, above the others, Jesus is above all of creation. He rules it. Now the question, how can Jesus rule all of creation? Well, it's stated there in verse 18. For by him all things were created. Jesus can rule creation because he himself made it. Just think about that. When you think of this world that was made, do you think that Jesus made it? We say, oh, God made it. But, but who, who made it? Yes, God, but God is three in one. God the Father, yes. God the Son, clearly here. And, of course, God the Spirit did. I think it's in Psalms where it says, you send forth your spirit, they were created. So God, the Trinity, three in one, was active in creation. And here we see Jesus to be said, by him all things were created. Jesus can rule it all because he made it all. But it says specifically what things did he create? Things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him. So what things were created by him? Everything. Heaven and earth. Well, that sounds like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Paul is putting Jesus parallel with Almighty God because Jesus indeed is Almighty God. That's the one who redeems us, who forgives us. That's Jesus it says things visible and invisible. Now think of visible things. I've been just really privileged to have traveled a lot in this country. I've got to see the Grand Canyon. And I think, Jesus made that. I've got, I've got to see the Rocky Mountains. What, what are some of the greatest things you guys have seen? Tell me, what are some of the greatest sights you've ever seen? Niagara Falls. Yellowstone National Park. I mean, we can think of all these wonders. It says Jesus created everything that's visible. Everything you've seen, Jesus has put that into existence. But not only things that are visible, but things that are invisible. Now, I think of things that are invisible. I think of the wind. The wind's invisible. You can't see it. Jesus put that into motion. But I start thinking a little more abstractly. Think about our feelings. Think about love. I mean, you can't see love, but, but who created love? Who created joy? Who created pleasure? Who created hope? Jesus put that all into existence, things visible and invisible. He made it all. And then Paul gets really specific. What things does he have especially in mind here with reference to invisible? He says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, these are terms that, tip, that, that are really used of the spiritual realm. Paul's acknowledging that there are angelic beings 
that are rulers and authorities in a spiritual realm. And, you know, as I mentioned in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. These people were led astray. They're elevating angels over Jesus, and they're even worshiping them. And Paul, what he's doing right here, he's saying, who made those angels? Who put them into existence? Who put those rulers, authorities, those thrones, those dominions, who placed them there? Even the ones in the spiritual realm that we can't see, who put them there? Who made the heavens that we can't see with our eyes? Jesus made those things that are visible and invisible. And we start thinking about this. What's so great about Jesus? He's God. He rules everything because he created it all. So when Paul said that God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, with whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ today, just recognize that he died on a cross being God, being the one who created this world, the things that are visible and invisible. He made it all. We can hardly put those thoughts into words. And so many songwriters try their best. I think of the song, How Great Thou Art. O Lord, my God, when I, in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds that thy hands hath made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunders, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. The hymns can put those truths in a beautiful way. But so could hip-hop. The ambassador, a Christian hip-hopper, he says, Who would have thought of such a great plan to make land give its shape and take its dust just to make man? And who had all the knowing to put his son up with no strings to shed bright light and grow things, such brilliance to make billions of stars? And what genius would make Venus and Mars? How do we explain cars, planes, and copters? Who made brains borrowed by lawyers and doctors? He says, is there any to compare to the truly extraordinary God that we ought to fear? See, he agreed to bleed and look bad, became sin for men and wore a cross like a book bag. See, artists always try to put these truths into words. And as glorious as these words are, they fall short. But we ought to sing them. We ought to praise God and lift our voices to him. Because Jesus created this all. And he deserves all worship and all of our praise. Paul says all things were created through him. But then he adds this. What does he say? And they're created for him. The purpose of all of creation is for Jesus. For what? To give him glory. All of creation. Jesus hung the stars in the sky, the sun, the moon, this earth, all of it, the, the trees, their leaves, to clap their hands and sing praise to him. That give him glory. And if all of creation's purpose is for Jesus, that includes you. You were created for Jesus. And what Paul is saying here, the purpose of your existence is to elevate and exalt the Son, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. You want to live a life that's filled with purpose? Live it for your Creator. Who is your Creator? In him, all things have come to existence, referring to Jesus. What's so great about Jesus? 
Well, he's the invisible God made visible. He's the ruler of all because he's the creator of all. And in verse 17, we see that he's the sustainer of all. So not only does he rule it all, he created it all, but he, all, he holds it all together. Look at verse 17. It says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He holds it all together. What keeps Saturn from crashing into Mars, from crashing into Neptune, from crashing into the Earth, from crashing into the moon? What keeps you from floating into the sky? You say gravity, gravitational pull. Who put gravity there? Breathe. Breathe. Who put the oxygen in your lungs? All the plants create oxygen and the sun rays. Who put the plants there? Who put the sun there? Who caused the water to fall? See, everything comes to one who created and one who sustains it. I'm no scientist, but the Bible tells me that Jesus is the one to sustain it all. Hebrews 1.3 says, He upholds the universe by the power of his word. By the power of his word. Again, it points me back to Genesis 1. God spoke it into existence. Jesus spoke the universe into existence. And with that same word from which he created things, it's the same word he uses to sustain it all together. This is Jesus we're talking about. He holds the universe together. He causes the earth to turn on its axis. He keeps us the right distance from the sun so we don't melt or we don't freeze. Jesus holds that all together. So what's so great about Jesus? He's God in flesh. He's the ruler and creator of all, and he's the sustainer of all things. But I'm going to keep bragging about him, because Paul's not done. Neither am I. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the head of the church meaning he is the authority. He is the one who leads the church. At Good News Bible Church, we have elders, but make no mistake, there is no confusion. Pastor Ralph is the senior pastor, but I know who the chief pastor is, and I know Pastor Ralph has affirmed that many times. The chief shepherd is Jesus, because he is the head, and he's called elders to, to rule and people to be a part of this body of Christ. But who is the head? It's Jesus. He's the head of it all. And Jesus being the head and we being the body, we're reminded that the church is a living organism. It's, it's, not, it's not static. It's not just some, some dead object. But it's life because Jesus keeps it going. He uses the church to carry out his purpose because he's the head. He directs it. That's all of us who name the name of Christ. We are part of that body. And Jesus leads us for his purposes, and we have an intimate fellowship with him. The body and the head are far apart. Jesus has that communion with us. Now see, Paul, he's taking this grand thing. Jesus is the invisible God made visible. Jesus is the ruler of creation. He is the creator of creation. He sustains creation. But then he gets narrow. He's the head of the church. 
This is us who named the name of Jesus, who placed our faith in him. This great God is our Savior. How is it that he's head of the church? What Paul says. He says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Paul, what are you talking about? What are you, what are you talking about? Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Well, quickly in my mind, I go to 1 Corinthians 15. You turn there if you... If you'd like, 1 Corinthians 15. And in verse 20, he starts drawing a conclusion. Because what Paul is doing, he says in the beginning of the book, in the beginning of the chapter, Jesus has raised from the dead. And if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, you, you pity me. I should be pitied because my faith is in vain. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, our lives are being wasted. But in verse 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, referring to Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then he goes on to talk about the resurrection. See, Jesus was the first to raise from the dead to inaugurate this hope of resurrection for all of us. When we, one day we will die, but we will be raised again when Jesus returns. And those of us who are alive still, when Jesus returns, our bodies will be changed. And when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, that's what he's talking about. Jesus started something new. He inaugurated a new time where there is a hope of a resurrection because he has set the standard, ultimately because he has conquered death. And that is why he is the head of the body, the church, because he conquered death and gives us that hope. And then he has this great statement that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. Everything. Think of all the language he's used. He is the firstborn of creation, first. He's a ruler. He's ahead of it all. He is before all things in verse 17. He is the beginning in verse 18. He's the firstborn from the dead in 18. And here that he might be preeminent, first rank, above all, supreme, incomparable. What's so great about Jesus? He's preeminent. He's above all. There's nothing above him because he is God. And the, tr the Trinity, this triune God that we worship is in perfect harmony and there's no one, there is nothing greater than God. And that's the Jesus that we worship. He's the invisible God made visible. He is the ruler of all because he's the creator of all. He is the sustainer of all. He is the head of this church. And fifthly, Jesus is the redeemer of humanity. This broad discussion has gotten so narrow, it, is, it now speaks to every one of us as individuals. Look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, Jesus has made a way for all of us to be at peace with God. Apart from Jesus, we are in hostility with God. We hate God. 
If you don't know Jesus today, if you have not surrendered your life to him, if you've only given lip service to it, you are an enemy of God because deep down inside you hate God. And that may sound harsh, but it's a reality. And that's why we need to be reconciled to God. Jesus didn't die for no reason. He died because there's hostility between us and God. He died and shed his blood to reconcile, to give peace between God and man. What's so great about him? He's redeemed us. And he could do that because he is God. And because he is God, he creates it all. He sustains it all. And he leads his church. Jesus is the preeminent one. And as I mentioned at the start of this message, my prayers, our hearts would just be engaged to think about this. This is the Jesus that we we read in scriptures. The God of all. He's the one who died on the cross. The the, the fact that God would become a man is, is astounding. The fact that as a man he would choose to die is even far more beyond our comprehension. And the fact that he did that to reconcile us who don't deserve it should even floor us more. What should our response to be to this great Jesus that we, uh, that we read about here? Well, I think right off the bat, it's worship. As we think about him, as we meditate upon him, that our hearts will be stirred to worship him. That we'd want him before anything else. Because he is before anything else, and he deserves it more than anything else. That our lives would be truly surrendered to him. And that's where Paul goes in the next verses. I want to read them. I'm not going to go through them real thoroughly. But look in verse 21. He says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order, this is the purpose, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So what's the second response? First, we worship because of who Jesus is and how great he is. But second of all, we pursue holiness. We seek to honor God with our lives, with our bodies, with our eyes, with our minds, with our hands, with our words, with our actions, with all that we are. We say, Jesus, you died that I might be presented before Almighty God, the Father, holy and blameless and above reproach. I want that to be my desire. Is that your desire today? Do you see Jesus as so awesome that your heart wants nothing greater than to please him? Is there no greater desire in your life than to please Jesus? Because if you've been bought by him, you would desire him and yearn to please him before anything. Paul continues on in verse 23. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He says, not shifting from the faith, the gospel that was preached to you. And, what, and I think this is our third application. So first, we worship Jesus because of his greatness. Second of all, we pursue, pursue holiness because that's what he bought us for. And thirdly, We remain stable in our faith, not shaken by counterfeits, not led astray by things that are false. But we look at Jesus, we look at him through the scriptures, and we see truth, and truth we pursue, not being led astray 
by all these teachings and opinions of men. At the very heart of the gospel is the love of God and his desire to glorify himself. And right off the bat in this, this men's retreat, I just want us to make clear. I want us to know without a doubt what this gospel, this good news is all about. Paul says that God the Father transferred us from the, the, the domain of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus with whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. This is, this is at the heart of it all. We don't deserve God's love. We are hostile with him. We, we are enemies of God. We pers- we, we're lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And we deserve God's wrath because of that. God is a just God. God is a just God. And he who is holy can't, can't just say, oh, you know what, you did bad. I'm going to sweep it under a rug. I'm, I'm going to ignore it. That's not just. Just is dealing with it. And God's holiness demands justice. And yet God is a God of love. That he would come in the form of man. Almighty God. Invisible God became visible. The God who rules all of creation. The God who created it all. The God who sustains it all. The God who is the head of the church. Jesus Christ, the God of all, would die on a cross. Shed his blood to give you the hope of forgiveness. And tonight, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, if you know about him, if you've been going to church for many years, you've been bringing your children to church, but you've never surrendered your life to Christ, if your desire isn't to please Christ and live for him, to give him glory, yes, imperfectly, but that's your desire is to please him, have you surrendered to him, honestly? And this is what Paul is calling us. He's saying, you were once alienated, but, but, but Jesus died for you. This, this almighty God died for you. So put away the counterfeits. Put away the false faith. Embrace the real Christ, the true one who loves you and wants that personal relationship with you and wants you to be a part of his body and him being the head to lead you. So my prayer as we go forward throughout this weekend is that we look at Christ, the preeminent one, the God of all, and our hearts will be stirred to worship him. Our hearts will be stirred to pursue holiness, and we'll be stable in faith and have a faith in him. And that's my prayer as we move forward. You know, tomorrow morning, I'm really excited about these workshops we're going to look at. Because we're going to dig deeper, even still, into who Jesus is. And it's going to be a joyful time as we look at the true one and not spend time on counterfeits. But look at the real Jesus that we would worship him and give him praise. Men, would you pray with me? Let's stand together. Let's bow together. Jesus, what's so great about you? so great about you and God as ones who know you how can we keep our mouths closed as Paul tells us let him who boasts boast in the Lord 
And Jesus, I'm just struck by how imperfectly we even boast in the Lord. God, we can hardly wrap our minds around your preeminence, your superiority, your incomparability. And yet we try to use words to convey that. And God, I pray that you would just take these dull words that I've tried to, my best to come together with and that you would just instill just greater beauty to them, Lord. That we would just see Jesus as, as awesome and that we would be stirred in our hearts to brag about him. That's my God. That's my God. He's above all things. Lord, you're above all things. Lord, there's nothing that compares to you. There's nothing, nothing, because you've made everything. That which is created cannot compete with him who created God. Oh, God, so we brag about you. We lift you high. We exalt your name above all names. And, oh, God, would our hearts yearn to just worship you and declare your praises. God, I pray for every man in here. I pray that we would just fall in love with Christ. That we would just seek to please you, God, in all things. Oh, stir these, these, these thoughts, these finite descriptions we have. Just stir them, God, to see your, your beauty, your, your grandeur, your, oh, just how you are above all things. Father, we commit this to you. And God, as we move forward tonight into tomorrow and this Sunday, oh, would we go forth with this, this picture and would you just expand it, God, before us. Oh, you are worthy. How great you are. In Jesus' name. Missed. Are you got an announcement? Okay, JJ's got an announcement.